product back in the 80s killed mine. I don't, I don't know what, uh, maybe, maybe Stan, you know, had some sort of hair grow product back then. So, well, let me say thanks for having me. I know you didn't ask for me. And so uh, I know this can be painful. You're probably like, uh, let's bring the other guy back out. But, um, I've known a little bit of Venture. I knew you when you were Hazeldale. I know a little bit of Mark Wright. I know a lot of the people that have been here, and it's just been a great church for a long time. And so uh, thank you for your faithfulness and your just consistent love of God and pursuing him above all else. If you got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 22. That's where we're going to spend some time today. But I need to tell you something right out of the gate. I thought I knew what love was in fifth grade. Any of you, when you were younger, really felt like you knew what love was right out of the gate? Fifth grade, I was uh, in a moment, we were getting ready to move. My family moved a lot when I was a kid. And uh, I had a friend, Brian, and we would hang out with some, uh, some of the classmates out on the playground. And there was this one girl that I was... Uh, somewhat fond of. Her name was Melissa. Uh, just long brown hair, nice little freckle on her cheek. I mean, she's just sweet as all get out. But her best friend was named Dawn. And Melissa and Dawn would hang out with Brian and I. And, and, and they, were, they, they were the athletes of our class. And so they would come out and we played football. They played football. If we played basketball, they played basketball. If we played kickball, they played kickball. They were just, uh, they were our ride and die. They were the people that we were hanging out with. And I remember having this crush on Melissa. And, and Dawn was just always kind of in the relationship. She was just always with us. Just a good friend. So all, all, just a good friend. And so the day comes that I'm getting ready to move. And, you know, all the kids are let out of class and we go out front and all the riders, you know, people who are getting on the buses go out front. They line up the buses and, and, and she goes out to hers and I'm a walker. And so they let us out a little bit later. And so it was no thing for me to say my goodbyes during class and know that I'm moving. And, but as I'm walking out, you know, I'm doing my normal routine. I'm just heading home, getting ready for the next adventure of my life. And as I get about a half a block away, I, I hear this voice yelling to me, Danny, Danny. And so I turn around and I say, hey, Dawn. And she's like, um, goodbye. And I say, goodbye. She goes, I'll miss you. And I said, I'll miss you too. And she says, I love you. And I said, I love you. And I was like, did that, what did I just sign up for, you know? <laughs> Is she going to hold me accountable to this? Are we getting married in 12 years? You know, what's, what's, what's happening in that moment? And, and a friendship love can connotate a lot of different things. And there's nothing more uncomfortable than un, being unsure about where the relationship really stands. I think as people, even as Christ followers, we have a hard time understanding what we mean when we say the word love. Don't we? It's almost cliche to talk about how we should love God and love others. It fits well on a t-shirt, goes well on a mug. It's a nice slogan to say to each other. But what's it really mean to love? Friendship love can be a challenge. Romantic love can be a whole nother kit and caboodle, can it? When I was a youth pastor back in the day and still had hair, I had two students. Um, we're going to go ahead and call them Ted and Jess because that's their names. But Ted and Jess uh, were in our youth group and they were from different high schools, rival high schools. Uh, one was from Bismarck. Uh, the other was from Potomac. Now, Ted, as a sophomore, his nickname was Big Ted. Ted, as a sophomore, could bench 300 pounds. Uh, Ted is now a grown man. He can still bench well over 300 pounds. We still call him Big Ted. Okay, but Big Ted was in our youth group and Jesse was a good friend of his and we had had a conversation. They hadn't really dated much and, and I just said, you guys really seem to be a great couple. And so that year some sparks kind of happened and so Ted got the courage to ask Jesse uh, to prom. The funny thing was she wanted to take him to her prom as well. 
And I remember her prom went first, I believe, and it was Potomac. They were rival high schools. Now, uh, rivalries in Indiana are a pretty big deal, aren't they? Especially back in the day when we only had one class for basketball. Remember that? Yeah? Well, uh, in Illinois, they're, they're kind of big, but not as big as Indiana. But they're big enough that if you show up from a rival sport and a rival school to somebody else's high school, they know you're there. And it's small town Illinois. You know, like 24 people in a class, kind of small town. So strangers stand out quite a bit. And Big Ted comes walking in. He's fully dressed. And uh, the night was called Under the Stars. That's so much better than my prom. My prom was Welcome to the Jungle. You know, what what's that tell you? Um, and so we walk into this prom, or they walk into this prom, and Ted's in his suit. And he kind of stands in, and the whole room kind of just looks at him. And uh, Jesse, just sweet and demure, is like, come on, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And sure enough, they have the whole night where they're dancing, and you know, the whole room, it's an old gymnasium, you know, the old classic gymnasium, it kind of smells funny, you know, echoes as you walk through, but they've got hanging from these ceilings, these paper mache moon and stars. The night goes on and they dance the night away and the romance is just filling the air and finally the DJ comes on and he says, ladies and gentlemen, tonight is going to be our final song. In a few moments you'll need to leave, so if you've got that special loved one, please join us on the dance floor as we finish the night. And Teddy reached out and he grabbed her by the hand and they walk out to the center of the gymnasium floor. The music is playing. And Big Ted wasn't a guy of many words. His, his knuckles tended to drag the ground, you know. He was usually one syllable at a time. And <laughs> Ted kind of took all of his energy and he kind of reached up for a moment and he was standing right underneath the paper mache moon. And he reached up and he grabbed it and he looked at her and he said, if I could give you the moon and stars, I would. Yeah, that's, that's what you call, that's home court advantage. That just changes everything, right? He handed her the crescent moon. And that guy's got some game. I wish, I wish that was my story. Don't you guys wish that was your story? I can tell you, Ted and Jess are happily married to this day. And uh, they're, they're a God-honoring family. They have a house full of boys. And I, every time I get a chance to tell that story in front of his boys, he turns beet red and she just beams, you know? Love. Romantic love. Friendship love is kind of hard for us to figure out. Romantic love is a whole nother game. But as church people, we talk about an unconditional love. A love that is not required on how much money is in our wallet or the name on the back of our jersey. It's not required by how long we've gone to a certain church or how much legacy we do or don't have. A kind of love that when we look people in the eye, we treat them with a dignity that only comes from God. And friends, can I be transparent with you? I think in this season, we've kind of let it slide. We've drawn some lines, haven't we? And God has called us into a dangerous middle where maybe one side is here and another side is there. And instead of standing in the middle like Jesus reaching out to others, no matter who they are, we kind of chose our sides. The challenge for us today is maybe to learn how to love like Jesus again. Jesus talked a lot about love. Uh, not a lot about friendship love or romantic love, but an unconditional love for each other. 
I mean, here's the basic big idea of what I just want to unpack today. If we're going to learn to love like Jesus, we need to understand that to love like Jesus means to love beyond reason. To love like Jesus means to love beyond reason. Because can we be honest here? If I have a chance to reason why I should or should not love somebody, I will reason you out of my love. That's not good for a pastor to say, is it? But I can't be the only one that feels that way. There are people that I, I, I maybe don't value so much. Transparently. 49er fans. I'm not concerned about them today. I'll just be honest with you. In Peyton we trust. Can I, can I, can I get, a, get an amen? Right? Yeah, yeah. There are some people that, you know, if I have a chance to reason some things, I'm going to reason them out of love. But if I want to love like Jesus, I have to learn to love beyond reason. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked. Jesus was having a conversation. Matthew chapter 22 is where we're going to find ourselves. And we're going to start uh, in, in verse 37. But here's the dynamic. Jesus is teaching openly in, 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 a, in, a, in a large area where people are now listening in. He is a rabbi, a teacher. People are measuring the content of his words. Often in that season or in that day, what would happen is other rabbis would sit in the open, uh, open landscape and also teach. And they would have disciples or students that would measure the content of any rabbi. And so you would get, Jesus had his closest disciples, his closest students that were following along with him. But other disciples or students from other rabbis would also be in earshot and other times come and kind of compare the teaching of the day. Sometimes in the marketplace, sometimes in the open fields. And one of these moments while Jesus is talking, that's how it's described in the Gospels, he's in the midst of teaching, an expert of the law comes to ask him a question. Now, we would use the term maybe attorney or lawyer, but uh, the law of that day is not just of a civic nature, but it's of a spiritual nature. So it's, it's rooted in our Old Testament, in the Torah, in the first five books of the First Testament. And so he's coming to find out how well Jesus really knows what he knows and wants to challenge and take a soil sample from his heart and say, let's see if he knows or if he understands what really matters. Here's what he says in these verses. Uh, Jesus, he asks him, which is the most important commandment? And Jesus answers him this way. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hangs on these commandments. These two. So Jesus says there are two big commandments that set as the overarching understanding of all that we are as the people of God. First and foremost, to love God with our entire being, to pursue God above everything else. And the second one is likened to it. It's one and one A. It's not like one and then second place. They go together. Because if you're truly going to love God, then the, the expression of that must be reality as well. Because if you say you love God and do not love people well, you don't know the nature of God. That's, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because sometimes in our Christian walk, we prefer to just keep our, our relationship with God private and personal. But Jesus says, no, it's, the second is likened to it. 
to know God, to love God, to be in relationship with God, is to let that love serve as a conduit through you. And your world of influence is transformed because of the discipleship, the student nature of yourself is now flowing in you and through you to the people around you. What I love about this passage is Jesus is just very clear that, hey, anything that you want to know and anything you want to understand, this is the foundation of of, of who we are. Now, these passages are actually rooted in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you were a good Hebrew of that day, you understood this is the anthem of your people. This was the challenge of every household. This should be on your doorpost. You should bind them to your your body. You You should have it be a regular anthem as you walk and as you lie down. This was to be a regular rhythm that your family family would know that there is one true God and you should pursue God with everything that you are. And so the expert of the law would go, he, he gets it. He, he understands it. What's interesting is Matthew keeps this a very concise conversation. He just tightly tucks it in in chapter 22. But both Mark and Luke use this as a springboard of conversation and how it plays out. Mark begins to press back into, uh, the gospel writer that is, Mark begins to press back into this conversation. And and he says that there's a little bit of a conversation between Jesus and and the expert of the law. And Jesus literally looks at him as, as this expert of the law kind of regurgitates back what Jesus says. And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 12 to the expert of the law. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, love God, love people. The expert of the law says, that's right. You know, love God, love people. It's more important than burnt sacrifices and offerings. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now commentators will kind of break this down two different ways. One is the idea that maybe he's in the stadium, but not on the field. Do you know what I'm saying? He's a fan, but he's not an actual player. He gets it, but he's not actually living it out. That's one application of it. But the more, the more uh, transient understanding, the more uh, movable understanding of this passage is that Jesus is saying, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Meaning everything that you as a people have longed for and hoped for, the presence of God is standing right in front of you. That to love God and to love people, this embodiment is here. You can touch, feel, sense, hear, recognize that the presence of God is now in front of you. And if you want to understand what it means to love God and love people, then just grab on and let's go. Can you imagine that moment? I mean, it's one thing to be able to understand your content. It's another thing to be able to back it up with your life. I mean, this expert of law had no idea that he would give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, This expert of law had no idea that he would sit with his disciples wash their feet. This, this expert of law had no idea that he may raise people from the dead or that he would do great miracles, let alone provide the forgiveness of sin for an entire world. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. Luke, uh, being the doctor that he is, the gospel writer of Luke, when he describes it, he, he gives a little more of an interchange and he gives a little bit more of a background and, 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 and literally Luke uh, says that Jesus at one point asks this expert of law, well, how is it written or how do you read it? Because let's be honest, sometimes we all look at scripture through our own rose-colored glasses. He regurgitates back this understanding of love God, love people. And Jesus says this in the book of Luke. He says, do this 
and you will live. Now, I, I have kind of a sick sense of humor. I kind of wish that in that moment, Jesus was kind of uh, doing a verbal slam dunk on the expert of the law, like, do this and lo- you will live. Like, I could call, you know, lightning from heaven and strike you down. That's not what he, it's, not a, it's not a threat from Jesus, okay? This is a promise. If you live this way, you will experience life like never before. The kingdom of God is right in front of you. Live like this and life will be more abundant than you could ever imagine. Now you can tell that Jesus uh, doesn't want to let this moment go because the writer of Luke, he says, Jesus tells a story. This is one of the most famous stories. If If you've grown up at church at all, you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The story goes as this. A man was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and on his way, he gets jumped by a band of robbers and he gets left for dead. Right? The story goes then, a priest and a Levi walk by and neither one of them do anything to help this person in need. Let's put it to you this way, okay? Uh, For whatever reason, um, one of your neighbor's uh, car broke down uh, on the wrong side of Indianapolis. And as they were there, they got out, they realized their cell phone was out of battery. They didn't have anybody call, so they got out of their car and they began to walk down a, a neighborhood that we all know they shouldn't be out walking in. But for whatever reason, they get out, they get jumped, they get robbed, they get left for dead on the side of the road. Stan was driving by in his car and uh, was jamming to a song that he really enjoyed and could not stop. Even worse, Jimmy just needed to get his vehicle washed and so he just kept going too, right? So your, your lead pastor, your youth pastor, have a chance to serve somebody and they just kind of tip their cap to him, hey, good luck to you and the... The Pacers this year. Now, if, if we told that story, we would all go, but, but they're heroes. The, you know, they're pastors. They get paid to love Jesus. They're not supposed to do that, right? So imagine if you're Jesus, you're telling this story, and you say that a priest and a Levite, two uh, religious leaders well-respected within the community, two roles of people who are supposed to embody the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God values, and he uses those two people, raises them up, and says, for whatever reason, they don't get involved. They don't roll up their sleeves. They don't step out in love. They don't reach out like they should. But instead, a Samaritan comes along and takes this wounded person, uh, actually, uh, brings some healing to them, uh, bounds up their wounds, sets them on their donkey, uh, takes them to a local hotel, which uh, hotels back in the day were more than just places of sleeping. You could actually get meal and refreshment and some medical care. And the guy actually literally goes and takes that person and gives up so much of himself, brings him to health and healing, and then says, hey, here's my visa. Whatever it takes, let's cover this. Now, in our day and age, where things are very politically correct, we say we should all be a good Samaritan. Jesus wants us to be the kind of person that goes above and beyond and loves those who are hurting. This is not a very politically correct parable, though. I don't know if you know that about Jesus, but sometimes he was bothersome to the religious world. What Jesus is literally saying is, friends, the people of God are not loving the way they should. And this person, who thinks different, acts different, votes different, believes different, looks different, is from another nation different, understands what it's like to live kingdom values. It just sends a shiver up and down your spine, doesn't it? 
It almost makes you say, come on now, Jesus. I mean, that's, that's offensive. You don't understand the world that we're a part of. You don't understand how hard it's got. You don't know what they've said. You don't know what the world's bringing against us. And yet Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. Do this and you will live. And so then Jesus turns to the expert of law and he says, which, which, which one do you think was the neighbor? It's the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says these words, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. It's such a simple statement, but it's almost like, you know they say that baby eagles learn how to fly? The mother takes them to great heights and drops them. And Jesus just kind of says, fly, little birdie, fly. I think sometimes when we talk about these passages, it's very easy to just, to just begin to just slap a nice sticker on it and say, I'm for Jesus, let's be like him. But Jesus said some very offensive things like, you know, if somebody asks you to carry your bag a mile, carry it a second mile. Jesus said things like, uh, if somebody hits you, why don't we turn the other cheek? Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. And the more we see Jesus lived out, the more we realize that loving like Jesus means that we have to love beyond our reasoning. We could justify why we shouldn't love. We could justify why we don't need to step out. We can justify why maybe that's just gonna be on them today. There's probably somebody in your life that you need to forgive. There's probably somebody who was really active here, but for whatever reason is no longer active here that we should reach out to. There's probably an old wound that's just kind of festering that when I, when I start to talk about this, everything within your mind cramps up so that you don't see their face. You don't relive that moment. And Jesus is saying, Go and do likewise. Now, friends, I understand there, there are some relationships that are completely toxic. And that's why Romans 12 says, as far as it be with you, be at peace with everyone. Do what you can. You don't always get to have peace with everybody. But I want to challenge us that we've reasoned stopping loving too quickly. We've hit the brakes on being the people of God too quickly. And God might just be pressing on our accelerator saying, Venture Church, this is our moment. To love beyond what the world or even the local church would say, that's normal, that's acceptable. You might be called to love differently today. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about loving God and loving people. The gospel writer John doesn't bring this story up at all. But he brings up the summarization of it all. It's the Passover. It's the, it's the, the meal that the, the Hebrews would celebrate of their deliverance out of Egypt. And John records a time where Jesus sits down and he pulls all of his disciples close. This is before he's about to be crucified. This is before his death. 
And Jesus says this, the Gospel of John writes it this way. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by what? By, by love. By this, everyone will know that you are my students, my disciples. If you love one another. It's a new command. If everything hangs on loving God and loving people, he's summarizing it together to just say, let's just simplify it. Love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. Ironically, John writes another uh, summarization of this in, in John 15. He says, my command is this. My challenge, my, my, my calling for you is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Wow. That's what Jesus is saying. And maybe you've got somebody that's difficult in your life. And maybe they're sitting right next to you right now. I don't know. But I think Jesus would say this. When you don't know what to do, Love like I love you. When you don't know what to do, love like Jesus loves you. How? He gave his life for you. Did you deserve it? No, no. The wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life. When you don't know what to do, love like Jesus loves you. Some of you are saying, yeah, Danny, you don't know my hurt. You don't know my past. You don't know my mistakes, my anger, my addictions, my woundedness, my hurt, my malice, whatever. No, I don't. I don't have the slightest. I know my own. But Jesus understands what it's like to be falsely accused and blamed, held responsible for somebody else's actions. I don't know your story, but Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed Beat down, mocked, ridiculed by the ones that he loves. To love like Jesus means that we need to love beyond reason. It's beyond a comprehension that any of us fully understand in this moment and probably will never understand until we're in eternity with God. But imagine Jesus tells this to his disciples and what if it just stopped there? It doesn't. Matter of fact, it starts a love revolution that begins to be replicated in other disciples generation after generation. And literally, one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, actually begins to define through his letters what does love really look like? He throws it together in all these one another statements. And I, I heard this shared one time from a pastor who, who talked about these one another statements. And he said, when we think about love, we need to ask this question, what does love require of me? It's a great question for the church, isn't it? What does love require of me? Simply put, it's to accept one another, bear with one another, care for one another, 
Carry one another's burdens. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. Restore one another. Submit to one another. These are all common phrases that are all throughout the New Testament that hang on the understanding of what it looks like for the people of God to truly love one another. And if most of those don't offend you, many of them probably do. I mean, these are challenging words for us to understand. But until the kingdom of God becomes alive in our hearts and our minds, the reality of the kingdom of God being here will just be a distant thought of something Jesus said 2,000 years ago. Loving beyond reason is not something that I am good at. It's a, it's, it's a challenge that has been something I've had to chew on for years. One of the greatest challenges of that moment was uh, early on in my marriage, I had the privilege to, uh, to adopt my second son. I have four boys. Pray for my wife. Uh, I have four boys, two adopted and two the old-fashioned way. And um, I had a chance to, to adopt my second oldest son. We were standing in the courthouse of Danville, Illinois, on the third level. There was a, a group of siblings that were kind of seated at different spots. My son's family was a large one. He was one of the youngest, not the youngest, second youngest. And you could see a smattering of some family members, but a lot of, um, a lot of foster parents who were there that were trying to help duct tape a family together in many ways. My wife and I were standing uh, along the edge, uh, kind of overlooking the the uh, hallway and you could see all the way up and down in this courthouse while we were waiting for our name to be called. And while Christy and I are standing there, we're kind of glancing through the group of people and we recognize our son's grandparents. They were good people. They did the best they could. But there was a man standing next to them. And I realized it was my, it was my son's birth father. I don't know him. I don't know him well. But the file I had did not speak well of his or her care for my son. He made eye contact with me and he walked towards me. And with every step, I began to rationalize what will I do if he comes talks to me. And sure enough, he made his way across probably what was 15 feet of a hallway. It seemed like an eternity and he stuck out his hand. He said, you must be Danny. And I said, you must be the guy that has a dog. Because that's the only thing I could remember positive that my son had ever said about him is that he had a dog. And we shook hands. It was the most painful moment of affection I have ever felt in my life. But I know if I didn't, he may not know the love of Jesus on any level for me. Friends, it's not easy. That's why it takes God to live a life of faith. But if we could love beyond reason, 
Imagine how our world would be different if we took this concept seriously. I want to close with a passage that you've probably heard read at a wedding. Clue alert, it has nothing to do with weddings. It's actually a passage that either references one of two things, the body of Christ manifesting love fully, or Jesus literally the embodiment of love. And so when you read this passage and you see the word love, there's actually a name that goes in there. Do you know that? It's Jesus. And so every time you read 1 Corinthians, it should read internally to the Christ follower, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Because Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes and always perseveres because Jesus never fails. But there's two people understood in that context. Love manifested in Jesus and love manifested in you. So you could Read that same patience, same passage. Let's go back to the beginning. Go back. Danny is patient. Oops, I, I got some work there. Danny is kind. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm friendly. Uh, Danny does not end. Ooh, I, I got some work to do. What would it look like for the rest of this week to read this passage? First with Jesus' name than with yours what might Jesus begin to stir up in you and in this church if 1 Corinthians 13 became more than just an anthem it became the prescription of this church let's pray God may the words that we have read bring life May your spirit agitate in us new life and growth in you. God, we want to love like you. We don't want to just be loved by you. We want to be love to others. And so God, while we stand as experts of church, we've gone to church for multiple days, multiple years, multiple decades. While we can say certain Bible facts forward and backwards, God, it's all nonsense. Unless we learn how to love like you. And so God, call us out of our comfort, pull us into the dangerous middle. And may we be able to look at one another and to the world that we're a part of with great confidence and say, the kingdom of God is here. Do this and we will live. Because as we go and do likewise, the world will
will see his disciples loving others as Jesus loves us. We ask all these things in your precious name.